Okay, thanks so much for having me here this morning. I'm really glad to be here and I'm really grateful for all of your support. Um, I graduated from Penfield High School in 2009 and I graduated from Michigan State University in 2013. And I've been attending Bellevue United Methodist um, since I was six years old. And in August of last year, 2013, I moved to Tucson, Arizona. And up here I have pictures of me living in Arizona. The first picture is from a visit to the Grand Canyon. And then the second picture is a view overlooking the city of Tucson, which is about 500,000 people in the, city of in the city of Tucson and about a million people in the metro area. So we can go to the next slide. And I went to Arizona because of a program called US2, and that's a program of the United Methodist Church. It's for young adults between the ages of 20 and 30, and it's a two-year faith-based social justice program. So these photos are um, of me and my classmates from 2013 to 2015 who are serving all over the US and all over the world because there's also an international program. So we spent three weeks in New York for our training and um, and then a lot of people ask me how I got into this program, how I decided to do this and it started with United Methodist Volunteers and Missions trips so I went on my first trip when I was 14 to New Orleans. This was right after Hurricane Katrina. And it was a group of uh, United Methodist members from Calamo and um, a few from Bellevue. And when I went on that trip, um, I think it really helped me uh, find like a passion inside of me because I was in this place um, I'd known that I wanted to go on the trip as soon as I heard about it. They announced it in church, and I turned to my mom and said, I want to go, and she was like, I don't know about this, because she's like, I don't know if I want my 14-year-old going down to Louisiana with people that I've never met before. But I did end up going, and uh, the one thing that stands out for me for that trip is a pastor um, who had turned her parsonage into a home for volunteers, and her church was in disrepair from the hurricane. And she was telling us about her experience and said it was the volunteers who gave her hope after this storm that had taken away everything she had and everything that most of her congregation members had, some of them leaving New Orleans um, never to come back. But that the volunteers who were willing to come and help her, even though they'd never met her before, was what gave her hope again. And I thought when I heard that, that that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be that person. And I felt like I'd found, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So I just spent ever since then trying to figure out how to continue doing that. And I kept going on these mission trips throughout high school and college. And that was my first um, avenue into this kind of work. And then when I went to college, I joined InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. and. I ended up in an Asian American chapter, so I made a lot of friends from different cultures and um, learned a lot about my own culture because um, when I lived with everyone else who was white, I never had to think about what it meant to be white. Um, so that helped me understand my identity a lot better. And my senior year of college, 
I started a Bible study for international students, and that was a source of great joy for me. A lot of these photos are of me and my um, international student friends. And then I went to an InterVarsity conference in 2012, December, called Urbana. And it's a student missions conference, and it's huge. In St. Louis, there's about 16,000 people who attend. And they have this huge room. It's a missions expo. And they have missions organizations from all over the US and all over the world. And I was very overwhelmed. But I saw the United Methodist Church booth. And I was like, oh, I know the Methodists. I'm Methodist. <laughs> so I went and talked to them. And I learned about the US2 program. And it just seemed like everything that I was looking for. So I applied for it and went through this application process. And then I was matched to Arizona, so they do a, a matching process where they match you to an organization based on the needs of the organization and based on your own skills and interests, so it's not based on where you want to go. Uh, so I didn't really know where I was going to end up, but I was matched to Iskashita Refugee Network. and. Um, before I go any further, I just want to quickly go over the definition of a refugee. So I work with refugees in Tucson, and refugees are defined by the United Nations as anyone who cannot return to their home country due to persecution because of race or religion, political opinion, social group like gender or sexual orientation. Um, so. These are reasons that people are fleeing their countries. Often, often there's some kind of war or frequently an ethnic conflict. And they become refugees as soon as they leave their country and cross a border into another country. And they then register with the United Nations. And from there, there's three things that can happen to them. They can either return to their country of origin if the conflict ends and it's safe to return, and that's the ideal solution that doesn't happen very often. The second is to be integrated into that second country that they're going into, um, where they're able to find a job and support their family and start a new life there. But frequently that doesn't happen either, often because there's so many refugees going into some of these countries that they just can't support, the infrastructure can't support it. Like Kenya, there's pretty much every country that borders Kenya, there are refugees coming into it. And they just can't support that many people coming into their country. So a lot of the refugees end up in camps for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And the third solution is for them to be resettled to a third country, such as the United States, or Canada, Australia, and some of the countries in Europe, particularly the Nordic countries. Um, but the US takes the most refugees every year, resettling about 70,000 to the United States each year. And the next highest number is like Canada and Australia at about 17,000. So the US is um, resettling a large number of refugees. But at the same time, less than 1% of the refugees in the world are resettled to a third country. And that's any country, not just the US. So I'm working with Iskashita Refugee Network. And Iskashita is a my my word, which is of the Somali Bantu. And it means working cooperatively together. And our director, Barbara Eisworth, founded Iskashita in 2003 
She was working with Somali Bantu youth, and they were refugees, and they were doing a fruit mapping project in Tucson. And there's a large amount of fruit in Tucson, despite the fact that it's in the desert, particularly citrus. And many people have citrus trees, and their citrus was falling on the ground and rotting. So as they were mapping, they would go up knock on the door and say, can we harvest your fruit? Would you donate it to us? And they usually would say yes. So she started harvesting fruit with refugees and eventually got a grant, um, a grant from United Way to start doing it on a regular basis and became a nonprofit supported under a, the 501c3 of a local United Methodist Church. Um, and so that's the organization that I'm working with. And we work with refugees um, as like an independent nonprofit. So there are organizations that are called resettlement agencies, and they work with refugees um, on a contract with the government. So they're given money by the government, and they have services that they're required to provide to refugees. And they're the ones who will meet the refugees when they get off the plane and find an apartment for them furnish their apartment very minimally and help them enroll the kids in school and work out insurance, get them the social security cards, help them find a job. So these are things that the resettlement agencies are doing. And we're just coming along and um, getting involved with people's lives um, on, a, on another level, trying to help them integrate into the community and trying to address a need that is food insecurity. And we can go to the, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> so this is a map of countries that uh, ref, we've worked with. So the countries in yellow are home countries of refugees that my organization, Iskashida, has worked with. And this isn't, these aren't all the countries that refugees come from. They're just all the countries that we've worked with people from. So there are hmm, 23 to 25 countries highlighted here. And right now, we're having the most refugees still coming from Iraq, Bhutan, and Congo. We can go to the next slide. And I know a lot more about refugee resettlement in Arizona since that's where I'm working, but I did a little bit of research about refugees in Michigan because they are resettled to Michigan and to every state in the US except Wyoming. Um, so. There's the vast majority of refugees coming to Michigan are Iraqi, which was surprising to me. It's just a really, really huge number. And there's about 3,600 refugees that were resettled to Michigan in, I believe this is from the 2012 fiscal year. And then the next highest were Bhutan, Burma, and DRC, which is Democratic Republic of Congo, and Somalia, and then 24 other countries. Um, and refugees in Michigan are resettled to Detroit, Lansing, um, Grand Rapids, and a small amount to Battle Creek also. And we can go to the next slide. So now I'm just going to talk more, a little more in depth about what my organization does and share a few stories about some of the refugees that I'm working with. So we harvest year-round. There's a huge amount of food resources in Tucson. So we have the top right, on the top right corner, um, those are dates, and we are making date vinegar um, under the instruction of the Iraqi refugees. 
And then the middle picture is grapefruit, and the bottom picture is pomegranates. Um, and then on the left, we have two Bhutanese women who are harvesting with us. So we go on harvest once or twice a week. In citrus season, which is in the winter, it's twice a week because there's just so much citrus, and we really can't get all of it. So we'll have homeowners who call us, and they tell us when they have more fruit than they can use, and we set up a time for our refugees and volunteers to go and harvest that fruit. Then they bring it back to our office, and we distribute it to refugee families and to other organizations in Tucson, like food banks or um, any. There are a lot of a lot of uh, nonprofits in Tucson that are working with a variety of different groups, and we'll send fruit to any of them as long as we have it. So, um, the refugees who are harvesting home to their families. And then we'll also go to apartment complexes where there are refugees uh, kind of concentrated there. And there are some apartment managers that will give them fruit and they'll make sure it's distributed to their residents. Or sometimes we'll give it to uh, a refugee family that we know and they'll distribute it to their friends and their neighbors. Um, and then these are just some more pictures of harvesting. So on the bottom right, that was from a garlic harvest. And we did two garlic harvests last month. And that was at a, a farm near Tucson. Mostly we, work, we harvest from residences in Tucson, but we also partner with some local orchards. And we can go to the next slide. So grapefruit is one of our, our most harvested items. And we do a lot with grapefruit. And so we have people hugging grapefruit and holding it on their heads. And then that's our director, Barbara, actually swimming in grapefruit. She, she wanted to find a way to kind of illustrate to the community how much grapefruit there was. So she decided we were going to pour our grapefruit into a pool and swim with it to show that we are literally swimming in grapefruit. <laughs> and as a kind of way to let them know there's fruit here. We can, um, we're harvesting it, we're harvesting a lot of it, but there's also a lot more out there, and there's a lot of people that we can be distributing food to. We can go to the next slide. So a question that I'm frequently asked is, what do you actually do? So this is meant to help answer that question a little bit. So the top left corner is from a food preservation workshop. I coordinate our food preservation workshops and this is another program that we have that's secondary to our harvesting. And we take some of the food that we've harvested and we use it to make specialty food products, which we then sell at farmers markets or other locations to support our work. And a lot of these recipes are taught to us by refugees. Um, or we just work with the refugees uh, in the kitchen. And it's primarily a canning process, which is really interesting to learn about in general. But we're also trying to help teach basic culinary skills or safety standards in the US, since a lot of the refugees will have their first job in the food industry. And even knowing things as simple as uh, washing their hands in warm water or not drying the dishes with a towel because the health department thinks it's unsanitary, um, those things can help them when they're trying to enter the workforce. And then on the top right are two women, um, Tabia and Antoinette. And they make 
the baskets that they're holding. They're Burundi baskets. These women are from Burundi. And they make these baskets out of palm frond. And then it's wrapped in little strips of plastic taken from like fruit bags, um, vegetable bags, like in grocery stores, or the bags that they'll put on newspapers when it rains, which it doesn't in Tucson very much. <laughs> but <laughs> um, so they make these baskets, and they're incredibly labor intensive. But um, we'll then take those and sell them at uh, different community events, and then the profit goes back to the refugee women. And that's the probably the biggest item that we sell, but we also sell other things like um, water bottle holders made of plarn, so plastic and yarn, or um, harvesting bags, and a wide variety of other smaller items. And then the bottom left-hand corner is um, a, com a com community garden. So the University of Arizona, which is in Tucson, gave us three community garden plots. So one of our interns organized this event where we were planting in our garden and we were juicing grapefruit and it was an opportunity for students at the school to meet a lot of the refugees and have time talking. And some of the refugees were gardening and really good at it so they were coming and telling us where to plant things and how much to water it and that sort of thing. So we have special events like that on Saturdays so that's something that I'll frequently be doing. And then the bottom right-hand corner is a picture from one of our Food for Thought dinners. And those are dinners that I coordinate. And this particular dinner was a potluck, and we held it at a local United Methodist Church. And we had refugees and other uh, volunteers and just church members, people from the area, come and had everyone bring um, a dish made from a family recipe. So we had a chance to taste all these different dishes from the refugees' home countries, and they got to share their traditional food with us. And a lot of us got to share our cultures, which is something that we don't frequently talk about. So we had foods from over 10 different countries represented, and we just had a wonderful evening of people getting to know each other and um, one of the refugees started playing piano for us, and um, another two um, refugees they'd never met before, but our intern the next day said, I thought they'd known each other for years because of how they were talking and how well they connected. So we just have a really wonderful time um, building community at these dinners. So I spend a lot of my time coordinating, um, planning things, planning events, finding volunteers, and I'll do some direct service. I'll occasionally will go on harvest if they need someone or if we're working with a special church group. We try and get church youth groups to come and do harvests with us and um, find locations of people in their church who have fruit trees and go to those locations and harvest together. And then I just do general kind of administrative work in our office. We have a lot of people who come and drop off donations so they'll be dropping off um, clothes or household items. Or we have other organizations that bring us food. So like the CSA, um, Community Supported Agriculture, will bring us some of their leftovers and we'll send some fruit with them. Um, and we have other, other organizations that will bring us food and we'll send them fruit in return. 
And so I help um, facilitate those arriving donations and then sending donations out to refugees or calling organizations to come pick up fruit or just general administrative type things like recording what volunteers came and how many volunteer hours we had um, since we need that information for getting grants and that sort of thing. So we can go to the next slide. So in the top left corner, those are blood oranges and they're really, really sweet, considered citrus royalty. And then right below that is blood orange juice and it was delicious and it wasn't sweetened or anything. And our director tells a story about how she went to someone's home and they were picking their oranges and the couple had just moved there and had never seen blood oranges before. And they were outside going to pick them and the wife called out to the husband, did you tell her they're weird inside? <laughs> and, <laughs> um, but they were thrilled because these oranges are delicious and um, very, very exciting for us to have. And then the picture, the largest picture is um, a refugee named Adam and he's one of my really good friends. He's from Sudan, from Darfur. And he's been in Tucson for about a year. He has a wife and three kids, and then his two younger brothers live with them also. His brothers are 19 and 20, and they're in the local high school. And they're just amazing, delightful people. And when I told them I was from Michigan, he said, oh, my sister's living there. So his sister came to Michigan maybe six months ago, and they, um, they must not have known that each other, she must not have known that her brothers were in Tucson, otherwise they would have resettled her there. The refugees don't get a choice in where they go, but if they have a family member somewhere, then they will send them there. Um, but they must not have known about each other or they would have been resettled together. So that to me says that they probably didn't even know if the others were alive or not. Um, and her, his sister has a few children. And I asked him, well, how do, what does your sister think of Michigan? And I expected him to say something about the weather and how it's cold. But his response was, she likes it because the government will protect her now. So that was really telling of what their experience was like in Darfur. And um, I know that their parents aren't alive. And I think that he may have witnessed the death of his father. So. It's um, really, it's hard to know these things that he's been through, but he's one of the most wonderful people that I've met. And I saw him the day before I left um, to come back to Michigan. And he said, oh, tell everyone that I said hello. Tell your mother and your father and your sisters and your brothers and your aunts and uncles and cousins and friends that I say hello. You have a picture of me, you can show them, tell them that I say hello. <laughs> So um, extremely friendly. And there was another dinner that we were at, um, and I saw him, um, and a Bhutanese man came in, and Adam said, oh, namaste, namaste, and that's the traditional greeting for them. And it was really heartwarming for me to see how they were embracing each other and that he um, was willing to learn this traditional greeting so that he could greet his Bhutanese friend um, in a way that's special to him. And then later the Bhutanese man told me, that man is my friend. I met him 
I met him at the community center. We're friends. <laughs> it was very sweet. And this particular Bhutanese man just became a US citizen. Um, I saw him the day before I left also. Um, this is a picture from a tomato harvest. And we just had that the week before I left. The University of Arizona had uh, tomatoes that they grow with hydroponics. Um, and I actually brought like probably 15 or 20 pounds of tomatoes home with me. And I made my suitcase really heavy. People are helping me put it up in the rack. <laughs> like, I hope no one asks me what's in here. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that I'll actually get to visit Adam's sister if I can get a hold of her and find out where she lives, which might be really difficult. But if I can, I'm going to bring her some tomatoes because one of her brothers helped harvest them. And then in the upper, um, the upper corner is a prickly pear cactus, and that's something that we harvest. And it's probably the most um, painful thing that we harvest. <laughs> Even though I, I haven't personally harvested it, but when they go out, they wear these thick gloves, and then they have these little tongs that they're using to pick the cactus. But they still end up with little spines in their fingers. You can't really escape it. And one of the refugees, when he went there, had never experienced this before. And they usually will eat things while they're harvesting. And he took a bite out of it. And he came back to the office. And I said, oh, how was the harvest? And he said, don't kiss me. <laughs> there are spines in my lips. <laughs> um, and, and this particular refugee is also a good friend of mine. And his name is Allah, and he's from Iraq. He was an engineer in Iraq. And I think he's been in the US maybe a year or a year and a half. And my father came and visited me in November. And they met each other. And Allah said to my father, oh, you're Stephanie's father. And he said, don't worry. I'll be a father to her while you're in Michigan. So it was very um, touching. And I'd only, only known Allah for a little over a month at the time. And um, he's a wonderful man. And he's one of the wonderful gardeners. And actually, I don't know how he did this, but he ended up like doing a bunch of landscaping at his apartment complex. We don't know how he did it, but <laughs> he, he did. And then in this other corner is our director, Barbara, with a Bhutanese refugee. And this woman is. Um, deaf and so she also doesn't speak she's deaf and mute and we met her a couple months ago and she's has a husband and then there's another couple and they're all deaf and so we've we've had a wonderful time getting to know them and having the opportunity to bring them on harvest with us and that's been something really special um, since there's a lot of isolation to begin with when you're a refugee coming to the US not knowing English, knowing maybe three or four other languages, but you don't know English. And your credentials might not work here. You maybe have been a dentist in another country. You can't be a dentist here, even if you have a PhD in your other country. It doesn't matter once you're here. Um, but for them, not being able to even speak English because they can't hear must make it so much more difficult for them. But we've had a wonderful time uh, getting to know them and harvesting with them. And they came to a dinner that we had, and they are incredibly expressive. And one of them came up to me, and 
<laughs> he, this is, this is what he did. So he was, he was indicating to me that he'd found a piece of hair in his food. <laughs> um, he, he did it much better than I did, but he, he's very good at communicating <laughs> despite the fact that he can't speak. And even if he could, we wouldn't speak the same language. Um, and then the last story I'd like to share is about my friend. Uh, his name is Jean-Marie, and he was in an earlier photo. He had grapefruit on his head. And he's from Burundi. And there was an Imagine No Malaria benefit going on at one of the nearby churches. And he wrote a song about malaria, played it on piano and performed it for the group, and then shared his experience about having malaria and what it meant to him that um, this Imagine No Malaria campaign and how important it was to him that this was happening. And it was a really powerful experience because he was sharing about how um, in Burundi, um, this, the situation is very similar to what it was in Rwanda. Burundi is just south of Rwanda, and the ethnic conflict and the genocide was what was happening in there. And he was saying during the war in 1994, he was leaving, and he was an orphan, and he was in the refugee camp, 10 years old, and had malaria. And after the, um, that evening, after we took him home, I was in the car with our director and another coworker, and she said, I didn't know Jean-Marie was an orphan. And none of us knew. And for the next few days, I felt very down, just trying to wrestle with this idea of like living in a world where my friend could be an orphan at age 10 and live in a refugee camp. And yet, whenever he sings, he sings with this incredible joy. And it's like he lights up. And he's a Christian and very um, passionate, very devout. And um, it's in joy inspiring to see him sing with this joy and to share his love of God. And I think that's something that's impacted me a lot. And that's something that I'm trying to learn is having joy while also learning about truth. Um, because even though the things that I'm learning about are really difficult and it's really hard to be doing this, but I wouldn't want to change it. Um, a friend asked if knowing these people's stories, if that was a burden. And of course it, it is, but I wouldn't want to change it because just because I don't know, that doesn't stop anything from happening. That doesn't mean that it, it isn't still real, that it isn't still true. So I think it's a process of learning how to know these things, but also to have a joy and appreciation of what God's doing still. You can go to the next slide. So these are just a few ways that we can all contribute to um, what's going on. And as I said earlier, there are refugees in Michigan. So you can meet refugees all around the state. Um, I have flyers about my program. And there are also some summer programs. Um, so I'm guessing that everyone knows at least one person who's between the ages of 18 and 30. So you could give uh, someone a flyer if that's something they might be interested in. And then you can support my organization, Iskashita, or me 
personally through my advance account in the United Methodist Church. And then I'll also, I also have these um, booklets of different opportunities to, and this is like all the different projects that the advance has in the United Methodist Church. So this is a really good resource. And of course there's prayer and this is one of my favorite quotes that prayer may in the end be stronger than all of my actions. So um, if you're interested in um, financially supporting my organization, please talk to me. And this is just ways to contact me. Um, that's my blog address and my email and my organization's website. And I'd be really happy to talk with you more and answer any questions because there are some things that I just don't have time to go into detail, but I'm sure that there are um, questions. And thank you so much for having me here today. <laughs>